Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, and I wanted to take a minute and just address all the campuses and, and announce our Christmas series, just introduce you to what we're gonna be doing over the Christmas series. And so, you know, if you remember back to the Nehemiah series, we uh, started the series by praying. Remember how Nehemiah prayed? And I said, hey, we wanna be a church that prays. And one of the things I asked you to pray for was to list some people that maybe to your knowledge, didn't know Christ, didn't have a relationship with God. And so to just begin to pray for them. Well, guess what? Uh, we're in the Christmas season and we have our Christmas Eve service coming up in just a few weeks. And it's gonna be a great service and we're gonna share the gospel. And one of the things I love about our culture is people, for whatever reason, think they should go to church on Christmas. And I think that's, uh, I think that's fantastic. And so we're gonna equip you with some invite cards. And I really wanna encourage you, take that list of people that you've been praying for and take a, as many invite cards to our Christmas Eve services you will give away and invite them out to the Christmas Eve service. We're gonna share the gospel. It's gonna be a candlelighting service. It's gonna be a great service and we would love for them to come. And so I just wanted to put that in the back of your mind. Be praying in these next couple of weeks. Grab some invite cards and invite the people you've been praying for to come out and join us for worship on Christmas Eve. Secondly, I wanna to announce to you our, our Christmas series. Really, really excited about this series. Uh, and you know, it's interesting how each of the gospel writers approaches the Christmas story differently. But one of the ways that's unique, one of the things that's unique to the Gospel of Matthew is he actually starts the Christmas story with a genealogy. And a lot of times when we're reading the Christmas story, we just read through that real quickly. But uh, it's really actually quite interesting. I mean, if you and I went on Ancestry.com and we found out that we had someone famous or someone of nobility in our family tree, we would certainly shout that from the rooftops, let everybody know uh, the descent, where we came from. But and Matthew has some of those, of course. He's got the patriarchs and he's got David. Uh, but you know, there's some characters buried in the genealogy that I don't think if they were in our family tree, we would want everyone to know about that. And so myself and the pastors, as we began to pray about the Christmas series, we were asking the question, why are some of these characters, characters like Bathsheba, Rahab, why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? And we concluded that it's all about grace. God in his grace uses broken people to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's so encouraging to me. And I hope that's encouraging to you that God uses people just like you and I, just like Rahab, just like Bathsheba, to be a part of what God is doing on the planet until the day that our faith becomes sight. And so I hope that you're encouraged as we unpack some of these characters out of the genealogy of the birth of Christ in this new series we're doing over the, over the month of December, The Unlikely Family Tree. chapter one. You got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter one as we are starting this new sermon series, An Unlikely Family Tree. You know, we're going to talk about the family of Jesus leading into this Christmas season. And that's fitting because we spend a lot of time with family this time of year, don't we? Between the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, spend a lot of time with family. That's really great and fun. Sometimes it can be hard though, right? We can be honest with, with each other this morning. It can be difficult because every family has a black sheep. There's somebody in your family that if they got caught in traffic and couldn't make it to Thanksgiving, you'd be like, oh darn. You wouldn't be that disappointed. I don't know, whoever it is in your family, I don't know. Maybe you've got a whiny cousin. You know, maybe you've got a nosy aunt. Maybe you've got that uncle that won't quit talking about politics. Uh, whoever it is in your family, you might be thinking, Pastor, I don't have somebody like that in my family. Okay, well then maybe it's you and you don't even know it. But. <laughs> Uh, but we all have that black sheep or two in our family. 
And if you're here this morning and you're like, my family is messed up, I have good news for you. You're in good company. Because as we're gonna see, as we study this genealogy, the family of Jesus was also messed up. And his family tree is laid out for us in Matthew chapter one. And I get it. When you do the read the Bible in a year plans, the genealogy isn't the part that rocks your world. In fact, you read it and you're like, I can't pronounce half of these names anyway. I think I'm just gonna skip it and get back to the good stuff. But let me tell you that God doesn't waste any words. And God has so much to teach us in these genealogies. And I think we have a lot to learn this morning. So here's the game plan for this Christmas series. We're gonna go through the genealogy of Jesus, yes, but we're going to talk about the women in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter one, there are five women mentioned in this genealogy, which would not have been normal in that day. So in these four Sundays, we're gonna talk about four of them. We're going to talk about Tamar this morning, we're gonna talk about Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary. And our hope in this series is that we will see by looking at the family of Jesus, we will see God's ability to redeem broken situations and to display the glory of his grace. And so this morning, we're going to study Tamar's story together in Genesis chapter 38. And if you've ever read that chapter before, if you're at all familiar with that story, uh, then you don't need me to tell you that there's some pretty adult themes, to say the least, uh, in the story that we're gonna study this morning. And let me be real with you. One of the things that I love about Coastal is that we don't shy away from the tough passages. Uh, we don't shy away from the weird passages. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. We go to all the word. Nevertheless, I'm giving you that disclaimer because we're gonna talk about some pretty adult themes this morning. If you decided to bring your kids in this morning and you're like, you know what? I think I better take them to the kids area. That's great. That's all on you. You're not gonna hurt my feelings. Uh, but nevertheless, I think we have so much that we can learn from this chapter of scripture this morning. And here's the main point. Here's the main point of the sermon this morning. God's grace redeems the brokenness in our lives and transforms us for his glory. With this in mind, let's read this genealogy up to Tamar. And then we're gonna study her story together. The game plan, we're gonna study Tamar's story first. Then we're gonna look and see what it has to teach us about our story. So this is what the word of God says, Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is true, that it's life-giving, Lord, that it's life-changing. Even the passages that are tricky or difficult to understand, Father, you have placed them in your word because in your infinite wisdom, you know that we need them. Father, I pray that you would set our hearts on fire this morning with that glorious truth that you love to step into messy and broken situations and redeem them to display the glory of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this and by the power of your spirit, apply it to our lives and make us like Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I had you turn to Matthew 1. Now, Bible drill, flip over. Uh, we're going to Ma now Genesis chapter 38. Okay, Genesis chapter 38. Turn back there with me. We're gonna study the story of Tamar, the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Let's talk about Tamar's story. 
Let's read this beginning in verse one. The word of God says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give an offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. All right, elephant in the room, real quick. I know what you guys are thinking right now. I have, can read your minds. This is what's going on in your head. Pastor Nate, what on earth? I came in this morning wanting shepherds. I wanted wise men. I wanted angels. I wanted a manger. I wanted sweet six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. What are we doing here? Not so fast. Stay with me. Trust me. God put this chapter in the Bible for a reason. And he mentioned Tamar and Judah and Perez in Matthew chapter one, in the birth story of Jesus for a reason. And I believe God has something incredible to show us from his word this morning. So let's jump in with a little bit of context. So the book of Genesis chapters 37 to 50 are telling the story of Joseph. Starting in chapter 37, Joseph is beloved by his father, hated by his brothers. They were jealous of him. So they beat him up, throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery. They go back and tell dad that an animal killed him. Joseph's story is going to continue in chapter 39. But then in between Joseph's story, we have this chapter 38 that seemingly has nothing to do with Joseph. And so have you ever done one of those puzzles where you're like, hey, which one of these does not belong? When you're reading through Genesis, you might think, what is this doing here? Like, how does this fit with the story of Joseph? That's what we're gonna see. God is gonna show us exactly what he wants to do in this chapter. And I believe he is gonna teach us something vital today. So let's real quick summarize what's going on here. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. You might remember they ain't supposed to do that. Abraham's family is supposed to be distinct. They have three kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now Ur marries a woman named Tamar. Doesn't give us any details, but Ur wasn't a good guy and God took him out. So then Judah tells Onan, all right, now I want you to marry Tamar and raise up an offspring for your brother. We hear that and we're like, uh, what? But we need to understand the ancient custom called leveret marriage. 
Levered at marriage was the idea that when a, uh, when, a, when a woman's husband would pass away and they didn't have any children, her brother would then have a child with her and the firstborn would be raised up for the brother. The reason for this is that often a widow in this culture would have been left economically vulnerable and his brother's name would have perished. We see this in Deuteronomy 25. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So when Judah goes to Onan and tells him to do what he tells him to do, that's what he's talking about. Okay, he's talking about raising up an offspring for his brother. And so... Onan knew that the child would not be his. So how do I say this politely? Um, He did not do what was necessary to raise up an offspring for his brother. That's the most PG way I can put it. Uh, He did not do what was necessary in order to have an offspring for his brother. Why did he not do that? I think because Onan knew that if he gave Ur an heir as the firstborn, he would get more of the inheritance than him. I think it's motivated by greed, but here's the deal. Here's what's fascinating. There's a similar story in the book of Ruth where there was a closer relative than Boaz that could have married Ruth. And you remember what that guy did? He said, no. So here's the deal. Onan could have just said no, but he doesn't. He does what we read about in this story. Why? Because Onan was willing to have sex with Tamar, but he was not willing to raise up a son for his brother. He wanted the pleasure without the responsibility. In other words, he was using her and lying to Judah. It was done under false pretenses. And God held him responsible for this. God judged Onan for this and took him out. So how does Judah respond? Judah totally misses the point. He thinks Tamar's the problem, like she's cursed or something. It doesn't see the wickedness of his sons. So he tells her, okay, you go stay in your father's house. And when my other son's old enough, you can have him. Knowing full well, he ain't gonna do that. Guys, this is a bad situation. That's your bullet point there. This is a bad situation. I mean, just take a second. Put yourself in Tamar's shoes. She now has two dead husbands and both were jerks. She's been used. She's been abused. She's been treated like an object, like a piece of property. And now, instead of at least letting her move on with her life, Judah is basically holding her prisoner by dangling the promise of his youngest son in front of her. And she's being treated like she's the problem. So maybe this morning you can relate to Tamar, not in the details of the situation, I really hope not. But maybe you can relate to Tamar and that you have been used You have been mistreated at the hands of other people. And I hope that this morning you'll find encouragement in the reality that God loves to demonstrate the power of his grace by redeeming situations even like this. That in Christ, as we're gonna see in a few minutes, your shame need no longer define you. But before we get to the beautiful resolution, don't worry, it gets worse. How is that possible? Well, let's keep reading. It goes from bad to worse. It's your next point. It goes from bad to worse. Look at verse 12. 
In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. And she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Like I said, from bad to even worse. Quick recap, Judah's wife passes away. He goes to shear the sheep. Tamar can finally see through this ruse that he's never going to give her her the other son. So Tamar, though she has been sinned against horribly, now is sinfully taking matters into her own hands. She disguises herself as a prostitute and sits on the side of the road. This is how highly she thinks of Judah, by the way. She's like, there's no way he could resist a prostitute on the side of the road. And guess what? She was right. So he comes and they start negotiating the price. And she said, hey, I need you to give me a pledge. And he asks, she asks for the signet, the staff, and the cord. Now the signet would have been this little like stamp thing that was used in transactions. It would have been used basically to identify him. Think driver's license, basically. And Judah is stupid enough to go, okay, here you go. Then she leaves, doesn't get his stuff back. And she, they sleep together and she becomes pregnant. I want you to see some irony here in the context of Genesis. Deception is one of the generational sins in Abraham's family. You see deception all over the place. You see Jacob being the deceiver, tricking his father and his brother into getting the birthright. He is then deceived by Laban into working an additional seven years. In Genesis 37, Judah now deceives Jacob Remember, by bringing the coat back dipped in blood. And now, yet again, the deceiver is being deceived. Guys, before we continue with this story, I just want to pause. You know, I talked to a guy after the first service and he made a comment like, you know, I read this story with my family recently and my daughter was just like, this story is so messed up. And I was like, I agree with her. It is messed up. She had exactly the right reaction. Guys, we should be disgusted at what we just read. We should be absolutely repulsed by this because this is so far from what God intended for marriage and for sex, these good gifts from him. A man with his own daughter-in-law, this is repulsive. And yet, just when we're ready to skip over this chapter because we think we can't take it anymore, we're about to see God use this in a dramatic way. We're coming up to the dramatic conclusion Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. By the way, in the Hebrew, that's probably more literally prostitution. 
She's become pregnant by prostitution. Moreover, she is pregnant by prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. You know, he's just such a, a moral guy. You know, he understands that anyone who sleeps with a prostitute, like that, that's, that's it, you gotta be burned. Anyway, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Mike, <laughs> Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. It's starting to become like an episode of Maury, you know? Like Judah, you are the father. Um, you know, Judah finds out that she's pregnant and being the paragon of moral virtue that he is, he's like, I can't tolerate this in my house. Anyone who would uh, engage in prostitution, they gotta be burned. And then she pulls out his driver's license and is like, hey, actually it was with this guy. And he knows he's caught. His hypocrisy is on full display. Buddy, if she deserves to be burned, you better get right alongside her. And he recognizes it, he owns it. He said, she is more righteous than I. Not saying that what she did was righteous, but she is more righteous than I because she only did this because of my lie and deception. This is the resolution to this story. Now it's been caught. But how can God bring good out of this? When we read this story, how can God bring any good out of this? The good is how the chapter is gonna end with two providential births that God brought two new lives into this world and he would use those two new lives in powerful ways. Look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand and his name was called Zerah. You know, the Bible has a lot of birth stories. I'm sure ladies, if we were to ask you, a lot of you have a lot of fun birth stories. I don't know if fun's the right word, but a lot of birth stories. You know, I, I have been in present for two births, our two children. Uh, it always makes me praise the Lord that I'm a man. Um, but the Bible has a ton of birth stories, especially in the book of Genesis. We're gonna talk about why in a couple of minutes. But this is the redemption moment in this story. When these twins are born, you have Zerah, whose name means scarlet because of the cord tied on his hand. He's supposed to be born first. But then Perez is like, uh-uh. And he pushes his brother aside and comes out first. So they literally name him Perez, which means breach, that he has pushed his way out. Even through this horrible, messy situation, God brings two new lives into the world through which he will accomplish his purposes. So friends, we've walked through Genesis 38. We've seen this story. We have looked at it clear in the face of this broken, weird, messy situation. But now we need to shift gears. We've talked about Tamar's story. Now I wanna talk about our story. I wanna talk about our story. What can we learn about our story from Tamar's story? I wanna show you two things fundamentally. The first, excuse me, is this. God's grace redeems our brokenness. God's grace redeems our brokenness. 
This story is one reminder of so many throughout scripture that there is no one too far gone for the grace of God, that there's no sin that's too big for God to forgive, that there's no shame too deep for God to heal, that there's no situation too broken for God to redeem and restore and use for good. I wanna show you a few ways that we see that dynamic at work in this story. First of all, in Tamar's life, in Tamar's life, Tamar was used. She was objectified, treated like a piece of property by Onan for his own lust. Judah made her a prisoner and blamed her for the death of his sons. Yet how is Tamar remembered in the rest of the Bible? Is she identified by her shame? Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Her name becomes a blessing later in the Bible. Did you know that? When Boaz and Ruth are getting ready to get married, listen to what they say to Boaz in Ruth chapter four, verse 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, this is them speaking to Boaz. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now listen to this. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. The home of Tamar and through her son Perez would be such a blessing that later generations would see that as a place of blessing. Tamar's story began in shame and it ends in grace. We all have baggage from our past. We all have sin that we've done before. And some of us, maybe you came to faith later in life or maybe like me, you've got a prodigal son story. And you have to experience shame for the things that you've done. Maybe you struggle to forget or to forgive things that you've done. Maybe the shame is not because of things that you've done, but you experience shame because of what's been done to you. Because others have treated you shamefully. You've been used or abused. And because of that, you can feel hopeless or worthless. Let me encourage you with this truth this morning, church. In Christ, your shame no longer defines you. In Christ, your shame no longer defines you. Grace is what defines you. You know, I'm very blessed, and he didn't know I'm gonna do this, but I'm very blessed to have a, a friend and a mentor visiting with us this morning, uh, Dr. Andy Wood. He's been a friend and mentor and counselor to me for years. Uh, I talk to him regularly on the phone. And I remember about two years ago, you might not remember this brother, uh, I was struggling with shame in my own life. And he sent me a poem that he wrote uh, that I have saved on my phone. And I've gone back and read multiple times uh, when I've began to struggle with the pull of shame in my heart, a poem that he wrote called A Product of Grace. Um, and as I reflected on Tamar's story, these words came to my heart. Listen to this. I am a product of grace. No measure of performance could ever achieve in a lifetime what the grace of God performed in an instant. No failure could erase what the spirit of God has completed for all of eternity. I am a product of grace. No nod of any human's approval could compare with the fulfillment, the joy, the wonder of knowing my heavenly father has turned his face toward me. No amount of mortal rejection can change the fact that my Lord God has made me accepted in the beloved. 
I am a product of grace. No sin of the past, no matter how grave, can resist the transforming power of a risen Lord. No future failure can change the fact that I am an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. Church, if you are in Christ, you are not a product of your past. You are a product of grace. Sin no longer defines you. Christ defines you. Listen to what the word of God has declared to be true of you. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Your sin and your shame no longer defines you. Christ defines you. And God delights to redeem people no matter where we've been or what we've done. So we've seen how God worked in Tamar's life. But next, we've seen how God worked in Tamar's family and her children, most notably Perez. Perez went on to be the ancestor of many great men. We see later in the book of Ruth that there's a line traced straight from Perez to King David. The original readers would have read that and been scandalized. You mean great King David came about through this story? Yep. We can one-up that though. Matthew chapter one, that great King Jesus came into the world and that they didn't even try to hide it that Matthew chapter one, right there, that Tamar is in the line of Jesus through Perez. You see, if Tamar's story teaches us that it doesn't matter what you've done, Perez's story teaches us that it doesn't matter where you're from. Because his family is screwed up. Like you think yours is messed up. Imagine Thanksgiving in Perez's house. Hey, mom and dad, how'd you guys meet? (laughs) Talk about awkward. But God doesn't choose people based on family pedigree, does he? God doesn't choose people based on where you're from or your social status or how much money you have or how important you are. As Paul said to the Corinthians, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, he's calling them dumb, weak, and not important. He's not that concerned about their self-esteem. It's not a compliment. But what does he go on to say? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And why does he do it? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God chooses what is weak and lowly so that it is perfectly clear who gets the glory. Who gets the credit? Why does God love to redeem broken situations? Because there's no way we can brag about it. There's no way we can boast in it so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Why does God love you? Not because of where you're from, not because of what you've done to earn it, not because of anything in you. He loves you because he is love. And it's an overflow of his character. You might be thinking this morning, Yeah, but Pastor Nate, my family, you haven't met them. We're not important. Even more than that, we're from Gloucester. People outside of here can't even pronounce it right. They say like Gloucester or Gloucester or whatever else. They can't even say it. 
We just say it's next to Yorktown. They're like, oh, okay, yeah. Like they don't even know where it is. I'm not important. I'm insignificant. When you start to feel insignificant, you should say, yeah, but do you know who my dad is? Do you know how important my heavenly father is? Do you know how important my older brother is? He's kind of the king of the universe, King Jesus. In Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the most high king. You are infinitely loved and infinitely cherished. So we see that God changed Tamar's life. We see that God changed Tamar's family. And lastly, God used Tamar to change Judah. God used Tamar to change Judah. The narrative arc of Judah is my favorite in the Bible, bar none. Love it. Love Judah's story. If all you've read is 38, you're like, oh, what? Let me explain. You see, he was born earlier. He was the fourth child of Leah. His name meant praise. This time I will praise the Lord, she said, when Judah was born. But his life up to this point had been anything but praiseworthy. In Genesis 37, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. In this chapter, we see his sexual immorality. We see his deception, his hypocrisy. But we're about to see how this encounter has radically changed his life. And to give credit where it's due, this next point in the sermon, I'm borrowing from Vodi Bauckham's incredible sermon on Joseph's story called The Rescuer. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite sermons. I'm borrowing this from him. You know, Joseph endures the suffering and shame of, first of all, being beaten and betrayed by his brothers. He endures slavery. He endures a false accusation that lands him in prison. He endures all these horrible things. Then eventually he is brought up to prominence in the land of Egypt. He's made the VP, second in command of Pharaoh himself. Years later, a famine strikes the land and Judah and his brothers don't have any food. So they go to Egypt to buy food. When they see Joseph, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. They think he's been dead for two decades. So Joseph decides to test them. He holds one of their brothers back. He said, I want you to go back and I want you to bring back your youngest brother, Benjamin. Then I'll bring you more food. So they go home. They ask Jacob, can we bring back Benjamin? He says, absolutely not. There's no way I'm losing another son. This is what Judah says, chapter 43. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Does he sound like a changed man? Earlier, he's offering pledges so he can sleep with a hooker. Now he's saying, I am the pledge. I will be a pledge for his safety. If he doesn't come back, put the blame on me. He is now taking responsibility for the family. He's now selfless and humble. So they go back. He brings Benjamin. Joseph decides it's time for one more test. He plants something in Benjamin's bag and then he brings them back and he says, as a punishment for your theft, I'm going to keep Benjamin as a slave in Egypt forever. Why is Joseph doing this test, by the way? He's saying to his brothers, are you going to abandon him like you abandoned me? And what does Judah do? Whereas last time he watched as Joseph was carried away into Egypt and went back and lied to his father. 
This time, he gives this incredible monologue in Genesis 44 and listen to how it ends. He said, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father? If the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is a changed man. This is what grace does, church. Grace not only forgives, grace transforms. This man who was once selfish is now sacrificial. This man who was once lustful is now loving. He is now offering himself in the place of his brother so that his father would be pleased. But I hope you hear an echo in Judah's words because you know what Judah is essentially saying here? He's saying to Joseph, take me instead of my brother. Let the punishment that he deserves be placed upon me and let me bear it. And why? So that my father will be pleased with his salvation. Does that sound familiar? Because Judah is going to have another son who is a lion from the tribe of Judah. Unlike Judah, he would be perfect and sinless from the very beginning. And yet one day he is going to go to the cross and it would be as if King Jesus, the lion of Judah were to say, take me instead of my brothers. Let me bear their punishment in their place so that father, you will be pleased with their redemption. That's the gospel, that Christ is our substitute, that Christ bore our sin and our shame in our place. And in Christ, when we come to him, he transforms us so that like Judah, we go from selfish to sacrificial, from proud to humble, from broken to holy. How does grace redeem our brokenness? By stepping into our world and bearing it in our place on Calvary. This is the gospel. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, this is your only hope. All of us have sinned before a holy God and we deserve to bear our punishment. But Jesus loved us so much that he is God in the flesh. He entered into this world. He went to the cross bearing our sin in our place. He bodily rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death so that when we turn to him, we will have eternal life. When we repent of our sins, we believe the gospel and we receive him as savior. That's the gospel. But there's one more thing I wanna show you about our story this morning that we learned from Tamar's story. And it's this, we are saved through a miraculous birth. We are saved through a miraculous birth. Tamar's story ends with this providential birth story through this conception and the birth of the twins, Perez, who would be the ancestor of King Jesus. But at Christmas, you and I are celebrating that we are saved through a miraculous birth. You know, I mentioned earlier that the Bible's filled with birth stories from Abraham and Sarah who had kids after 90 to Rebecca who was barren and then had children to Rachel who was barren and then had children to Hannah who was barren and then had children to Zechariah and Elizabeth who had John the Baptist at a very old age. Why so many birth stories? Because it's foreshadowing something. 
that ultimately that's the way our Redeemer is coming into the world through a miraculous birth, through something that no human being could accomplish, the virgin birth, making it clear that this is all of God, that God is entering into the world to rescue us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas church, that God stepped into our world to redeem it from the inside. I hope that you won't let this Christmas season pass by without meditating on that, without worshiping Christ, without adoring him for he is worthy. You know, it's far too easy to make Christmas all about lights and carols and presents and hot chocolate and cookies and movies. And I love all of those things too. But if that's all it is, we have totally missed the point. It's about grace entering into our world to redeem it from the inside. I hope that you'll take some time this Christmas to worship and adore Christ. As we close this morning, let me leave you with two practical takeaways that we can learn from this story as we invite the prayer team and the worship team to come forward. And as always, if you came in this morning with a burden, we have prayer team members here who'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Let me leave you with two practical takeaways. First of all, in light of what we've seen this morning, leave your shame behind. Leave it in the rearview mirror. In Christ, leave it behind. God's grace redeems our brokenness. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with shame. It could be over a sin that you've committed in your past that you hate and you live with regret and you hope no one ever finds out what you've done. Maybe you're here and the shame is not because of your own sin. It's because of sin that someone has done to you. You've suffered greatly. You've been abused. You've been hurt and mistreated and you feel ashamed and worthless. Man, God's grace redeems us so that while shame can be in the beginning, it's grace in the ending. That Shame no longer defines you. Christ defines you. How can we do that? We need to learn how to view ourselves the way that Paul viewed himself. Willing to bet you're not worse than Paul. I mean, I don't know, maybe you traveled around the world persecuting churches. If so, then maybe you're on the level of Paul, but I'm willing to bet not. How did Paul view his past? He said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But then what does he say about it? 1 Timothy 1.16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, that is as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He's not hiding his past, he's displaying it because as an example of what Christ has redeemed. Paul was a product of grace, but Paul was also a trophy of grace. He existed to display the incredible grace of God. So man, if you're here today and you're wrestling with shame, let the grace of God melt away your shame this morning. You might be living thinking, but Pastor Nate, if people find out what I did, maybe they'll judge me. Maybe they'll think less of me. We live in cancel culture after all. When grace has redefined your worldview, your response will be, so what? Let them, let them find out, who cares? You know why? Because in Christ, your past is not a threat, it's a testimony. The sin of your past is an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. We have nothing to hide.
because it's all been redeemed by Christ. Let your life, brokenness and all, be a trophy of grace. Last takeaway, and we'll close with this. Leave your sin behind. Leave your shame behind, but also leave your sin behind. It says in Genesis 38, 26, after Judah confessed, he did not know her again. He did not go back to his sin. What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery after he forgave her? He said, go and sin no more. Yes, we leave our shame behind, but we also leave our sin behind. Grace does not only forgive, grace transforms, it cleanses, it changes us. The same grace that saves us also sanctifies us. So let's leave behind the sin that characterized our lives before Jesus. This is what Peter wrote. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Let us never be like the Israelites who when they looked back on their bondage in Egypt were saying, but yeah, yeah, but the food was really good. The cucumbers and the melons. I know we were in slavery, but the food was better than this manna. Guys, let's look at our past before Jesus and praise him for what he saved us from and commit ourselves to living new lives to the glory of God. My hope and my prayer for us at Coastal Gloucester is that this church would be a trophy case, that this building would be a trophy case where God displays the trophies of his incredible grace, where our lives would be a testimony to our God's power and delight in redeeming and restoring broken people like you and me. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, you have been so kind to us. You have been so good to us, so far beyond what we could deserve. I thank you, Father, that your grace intervened and rescued me when I was a stranger wandering from the fold of God. I thank you, Lord, that in Christ, shame and sin no longer define us, but your grace defines us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to rest and to rejoice in Christ this Christmas season. Lord, we love you. Bless us as we go from this place. Let us live for your glory alone. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.